Now this evening we come to deal with the key and the message to the book of Zechariah. And I will have to leave all the problems to do with the authorship and date and background of Zechariah um, for you to find out either by listening to the tape of the last study or by coming to me privately. Haggai had pointed out the lessons of the past and the present, for the most part, bringing everything down to the one single and simple matter of building. For uh, Haggai, there was in fact nothing else. His one great emphasis was building. And in many ways, he hardly ever strays from that emphasis. Of course, he does tell us about the coming of the Lord. He does um, speak about the promise of the Lord doing something uh, in the future. But in fact, Haggai never strays from this one single theme that he's got, the absolute and vital necessity of not only coming back to the land, of not only celebrating the feasts, of not only knowing something of the law of God, of not only offering offerings on the altar of God, but of actual the, of the actual building of God's house. Now, Zechariah begins there. If you turn to the passage we have read this evening, in, from, in, in Zechariah chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 6, you will find that the first thing that... Um, Zechariah's first message of Zechariah that is recorded is a lesson from history. Like his great co-worker, his fellow prophet, he goes back into the past. And the first message we have of Zechariah is another lesson from history. But although he begins there with a lesson from the past and the present, and encourages uh, the children of God, the remnant, to really go right on to the completion of the building. The same as Haggai. Haggai's ministry uh, along this line is exactly the same. He's encouraging the, the remnant not only to get on with the job of preparation, but having started the building, of going right on to the actual completion of the work of building. Well, Zechariah comes, and he begins there, and he also, his whole ministry in the first section of this book, is taken up with an encouraging of the children of God to go on to the completion of the work, to the fulfillment of God's purpose. But here is the great difference. He encourages them to go on to the completion of the work of building, not merely because of the lessons of the past. 
not merely because of what they've learnt from their past history, nor simply or merely because it was the Lord's will at that time for the house to be built. That was important. But he didn't stop there. No, he encourages them to go on to the completion of the work of building the house and the city because it is an indispensable condition for the appearing of the Messiah, Christ, and his kingdom. Now, this is the difference between Zechariah and Haggai. Haggai, of course, there have been some inferences, some, some uh, gleams of, of the coming of the Lord and this building work being in the light of that coming. But now in Zechariah, it comes right out into the open. His whole theme is don't let's get on with this building work simply because it's a lesson from our past history nor simply because it's God's will for us to do it now in our day and generation, but let's get on with the rebuilding of the house and the city and the land because it is an indispensable uh, condition to the coming of Christ. Now, if you will take your um, uh, Bibles and the, open them at the book of Zechariah, we'll just see whether this is so. First of all, chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Then chapter 3, verse 8. The last part of the verse 8. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For, a per for, for behold, upon the stone which I have set before Joshua... Upon a single stone with seven eyes, or facets, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. There could be no clearer prediction of the coming of Christ. Then again, Zechariah 6, chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall grow up in his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And there shall be a priest by his throne, and peaceful understanding shall be between them both. Verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Then chapter 8, verse 21. Well, we'll read from verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favour of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Chapter 9, verse 9. There here is one of the clearest predictions of all. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. And it goes on the last part of verse 10. He shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then lastly, chapter 10, verse 3 and verse 4, last part of verse 3, For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his proud steed in battle. Out of them shall come the cornerstone, out of them the tent peg, out of them the battle bow, out of them every ruler. Now, these are just a sample of many other um, uh, scriptures, verses um, from this book, which reveal that Zechariah's emphasis was this. You and I are in this business of rebuilding the house of God and the city of God and rebuilding the cities in the land, the promised land, not just because of past history, nor just because it is the will of God in our particular day and generation, but because, you see, it is a condition, an indispensable condition for the coming of Christ and of his kingdom. You see... Zechariah lifts this whole matter of building, of the building work, onto another level. It's not just something local and something national. It's not something of just a, a particular significance for a certain generation at a certain particular time in history. No, he lifts it onto another level. It's not just even a question of people being obedient because they've understood something of God's past dealings with his children and have learned to be obedient in their own day. It is, of course, a lesson in that it illustrates that. But you see, he lifts it onto a new level. For him, this building work was centred supremely in Christ himself. It, it, it was nothing if it wasn't directly and supremely related to the Messiah. When you begin to understand that, you've got to the heart of Zechariah's message. By being involved in the present, in all the difficulties and problems of the rebuilding 
of God's house and city, they were becoming involved, actually involved, in the coming glory, reign, and kingdom of the Messiah. You see, for Zechariah, it was worth everything, worth all the suffering, worth the hardship, worth the discipline, worth the rub of having to be subject to others, all the hard work of being together, the expeditions to go out and get the wood and quarry the stone and prepare it, and then all the hard job of actually building it according to plan, according to the blueprint, as it were, it was all worth it. If they were able, by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit, to fulfill the necessary prerequisites for the coming of Christ. That's exactly what Zechariah really says in this book. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. If we can fulfill the prerequisites for the coming of the Lord, then it's all worth it. Because when he comes all the sordid side of it, all the difficult side of it, will pale in the splendors of his glory. It will just be like a mist that vanishes away with the rising of the sun. Nothing, nothing to be accounted if once we can be there and involved in the coming of the Lord. Zechariah sees everything in fact, in the light of the transcendent glory and greatness of Christ. Now, you see, this is so interesting. Haggai, of course, saw the Lord. Haggai also emphasized, obviously, the, the, the person and the character of the Lord, but not in the way that Zechariah does. Zechariah sees this whole question of building, this whole question of, of coming back to the land, this, this question of returning to God, the center of God's purpose and will. He sees it all in the light of, of, the, of the greatness and the glory of Christ. For him, it's not just to do with bricks and mortar. It's not just a building program. It's not just expeditions to somehow or other build something that's going to become a monument, a national monument to the, uh, to the sort of uh, national entity of the people. No, for Zechariah, this had something to do with the glory and the greatness of God's Christ. And that's why his ministry is a ministry of encouragement and hope and promise. Why? Why? I don't think we could really call Haggai's ministry such a ministry of encouragement, hope and promise. Not quite in the same way. You don't get the same atmosphere. Dr. F.B. Meyer called Zechariah the prophet of hope. Why is there this, this marvellous this, this marvelous train of encouragement, this, this sort of um, uh, line that runs right the way through the, the whole of this book of encouragement and, and of hope? Why? Because he sees that the sovereignty and the purpose 
and the blessing of God centers and rests upon Christ. Therefore, Zechariah argues, if you and I are involved in what is centered and resting upon Christ, we shall be in the stream of the sovereign activity of God. We shall be at the heart of the purpose of God, whether in this day or in any other day. We shall be at the heart of the fullness of blessing. Now there's a point. People always ask me, what is the will of God for this? What is the will of God for that? My dear friend, if you want to know the sovereign activity of God, get into Christ. Get into Christ. Make Christ everything. Become devoted to Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Let Christ fill your vision. Be absolutely obedient to him. Live a life of union with him. And you'll find the sovereign activity of God. You're in the stream of it. You're right at the heart of God's purpose, whether now, in particular detail, in local detail, in personal detail, or in, shall I call it, universal detail. Whether it's now or in the ages to come, if you make Christ your centre and heart, the circumference of your life, you will discover that you're at the heart of everything. There you will discover the fullness of God's blessing. There you will discover an open heaven. There you will find the whole host of heaven are with you. They're behind you. They're for you. But if you make things the heart of everything, if you make doctrines or truths the heart of everything, if you make even God's church the heart of everything, as are apart from Christ, then there's trouble. You won't find the, the, the sovereign activity of God. You won't find that you're in the heart of God's purpose. You won't find the fullness of blessing. Oh, there's so much here that we could say. You see, of course Zechariah has a ministry of encouragement and hope and promise. Because, you see, he sees all this is centered in the Lord. And you, he's saying to them, you and I, we are at Actually, by building this house and rebuilding this city and repopulating and building up the cities of the promised land, we are actually in the, at the very heart of God's purpose. Because all this is directly related to the greatness and the glory of the coming Messiah. So, to be in on this, means simply that we are at the heart of God's purpose. Can we again look up some scriptures? Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16. This is just to show you the encouraging ministry of, of Zechariah. Of course, there are other points we shall make a bit later. His encouragement, of course, starts when they return uh, to the Lord. And they are obedient. Now he says, verse 14, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion or with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. What encouragement! For those people struggling 
with all the difficulties and problems of the building. This was, this was given, you know, some, what, some four years before the actual house was completed. And, and there'd only been two months, if I'm right, on the work of actual construction. And here comes this word, my house shall be built in it. And the measuring line shall be stretched forth over Jerusalem, much more than the house. And then listen, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities, cities, so house, city, cities, shall overflow with prosperity. Well, now that's a ministry of encouragement, isn't it? Well, I'll turn over to chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to this. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle in it. For I will be to her a wall of fire round about, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within her. That's how great Jerusalem is going to be, Zechariah says. You won't be able to put any walls around it, nor will you be able to measure it. It'll be that great. And then uh, chapter 4, the well-known verses that I think most of us know. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. You see, this is a ministry of encouragement, and it's a ministry of hope, it's a ministry of promise. These folk are in the sovereign activity of God. The heart of the purpose of God, the fullness of blessing, is theirs. Well, really, you ought to go, if some of you are interested in this, you ought to go right through this book with a, a red pencil, if you've got a study version of your Bible. Underline every single distinct promise in this book. You'll be surprised. You'll be utterly surprised at this, there's a wonderful strain of encouragement and hope that there is in the prophet Zechariah. I would like you to notice one very wonderful little phrase that tends to get buried, perhaps, in much else. Chapter 9, verse 12. It's messianic again. It's another wonderful prophecy of Christ. But it's, it's most remarkable. Listen. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your captives free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. What a remarkable phrase. Return to your, stro your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Isn't that a marvellous, uh, a marvellous word? You see, Zechariah, one of Zechariah's key words is return. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to your stronghold, ye prisoners of hope, your prisoners of the Lord, prisoners of the coming Messiah. Get back into your stronghold, you prisoners of hope. You see, they've got hope. It's a ministry of hope. Mm. Well, we should note very carefully 
the counterbalancing relationship of Haggai and Zechariah. They are both necessary to the other. Now, I believe we've got something to learn here. Zechariah <coughs> stresses the more inward, as Haggai stresses the more outward. For Zechariah, it was not building for building's sake. Whether house or city or land, it was Christ. It was more inward. Haggai taken by himself, well, we would say his whole stress is building, building, building. He says, come on, go get the material, go get the wood, come on, get on with the job. All this business of, of, your, of, of letting your hands hang down feeble. Be strong and work. Get out and get the, the materials. Let's get on with the job of construction. His emphasis was intensely practical to do with the actual more public, more outward uh, aspect. But you see... Zechariah's emphasis was as, was as needful, if not more needful. His emphasis was Christ. This building's not just for building's sake. Getting the material is not just because we want a lot of nice material. It's for Christ. It's all to do with Christ. We could say, when we look at this, that Haggai's emphasis is the church. The body of Christ. Zechariah's emphasis is Christ, whose body is the church. In that, you've got the key to both. They need each other. Now, you've got the exact same thing in the New Testament. In the letter to the Ephesians, you've got, you have the church, whose, uh, the church, the body of Christ. In the book, in the letter to the Ephesians, the whole emphasis is on us. What, what God has done with us. He's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And then how he's made us alive with him. And made us to sit with him. And then how we're being built upon the foundation. And everything else all the way through. But Colossians, it's the other way around. It is Christ whose body is the is the church. It's just a slight difference of emphasis. But it is so very interesting. In Haggai, we have our side emphasized. We must build. We must build. That's Haggai. Man's full responsibility. If he doesn't build, God will do nothing. If man does, is not obedient, if the children of God are not utterly obedient to the Lord, then they are, will be held fully responsible. That's Haggai. But with Zechariah, we have another side. We have the Lord's side. He will, call, he, he will cause his house and his city and the cities to be built. He's going to see that it's done. The emphasis is on God's sovereign grace and power. And the two go together. You see, these two ministries belong to each other. You've got to have them. You must have them together. They counterbalance each other. 
It is so necessary in any emphasis rightly on the church. Now this is what I want to underline. It's, it's so necessary in any emphasis rightly on the church. It's recovery. It's building up. It's gifts and functions. And so on. It's testimony. It's witness. And so on and so forth. It is so necessary to see it as part of the greatness and glory of Christ. If we see it in any way as apart from Christ, it becomes detrimental to his preeminence. The moment you and I make the church something apart from Christ, a thing, a teaching, an organization, a movement, or anything else in that realm, it becomes detrimental, that moment, to Christ. It begins to take away from his glory and greatness. The church becomes the central and important thing in everyone's eyes. Now, church history is filled with the tragic examples of this, the Church of Rome. You have the church made the thing. And the result is the glory of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, the preeminence of Christ is prejudiced. It's jeopardized. It's compromised. You've got it again, if I may go to the other end almost of the extreme, to in exclusivism. So much so that again it's taken away in the end from the glory of Christ. So you see, it's very important for us to understand what Zechariah is getting at in this matter. If we're going to emphasize the church, and we ought to, it is right to do so, uh, we've got to see it as part of the glory and the greatness of Christ. We need, therefore, you see, to see the church in Christ. That's the point. We must see it in Christ. Just like, Zechar uh, like Isaiah, at the beginning of his ministry, was in the temple of the Lord, and suddenly lifted up his eyes and couldn't see the temple anymore. It had gone. Instead, he saw some strange kind of mysterious veil that hid it, and as he looked up and up and up, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, whose train, the skirt of his gums, filled the temple. It hid it. So you and I need to see the church in Christ. We need to see it as the body of Christ, with no meaning apart from him. Christ is its head and its life. He is everything. We need to see the matter of being built up and built together as being built up into Christ. As being built together into Christ. You see? It's a difference of emphasis, but it's so necessary. The Lord didn't let just Haggai remain on his own. He gave Zechariah to stand by him. So one with his great emphasis on man's responsibility in getting the material and getting on with the job of construction was balanced by the other whose supreme emphasis was the glory and the greatness of Christ in this building. And the two must go together. There is a danger here in this very company. 
that we that we we put such an emphasis upon building and upon upon the church and, and what the Lord has done that somehow or other in, we're not very careful if our, the eyes of our heart are not open to see what the church is to see it as the body of the Lord to see it as the very extension if I may so use the term of Christ we are in danger because no human being can have two centers you can't have the Lord as a center and the church as a center you can't do it it's, it's, it's a, a psychological law. You're torn between two things. You've got to have one center. And you see, that's the necessity. If we begin to see the importance of the recovery and the building up and the gifts and the functions of the church in our day and generation of seeing it as in Christ, as part of Christ, as linked with the greatness and the glory of Christ as something essentially linked to the returning of the Lord. I believe all that is very, very important. And although I know some of you know these scriptures, I think it might be helpful for one or two who uh, may not, just to underline them. What does scripture say about this? Well, there's a tremendous wealth of scripture on this but I'm going to just underline one or two John chapter 15 verse 1 John chapter 15 verse 1 here is the New Testament side to Zechariah's ministry in this matter I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman now the Lord says I am the true vine he is the vine completely. Roots, trunk, branches, leaves, blossom, fruit, tendrils. The vine in its entirety. I am the true vine. Verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. So, uh, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. I'm sorry. Verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit, for apart from me ye can do nothing. Now what the Lord was really saying is this in some marvellous way. You have become part of me, I have become part of you. I am the branches, you are the branches. I am the whole vine, you are the branches. I am in fact the branches, but you are the branches. Just like the Lord said, I am the light of the world, ye are the light of the world. Not two different lights, the same. He is a living stone. You are living stone. Do I get it? He is the vine. He is everything. He is the branches. But we are the branches. We have been placed in him. He has got into us. We are in him. So he says, abide in me, get into him, and I'll get into you. Do you understand? The two things have got, the two people, if you like, have got into each other. They've become one. Absolutely one. Just like the milk and the tea stirred together become one. They have been fused together into a union. Now if you look again, you'll find this all the way through Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now there the Holy Spirit is simply saying that all Christians are Christ. 
He, of course, is the head, personally. But we are all, we are the body. Although there are many, many members, and only one body, so also is Christ. Then again, if you would like to turn back, Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ. There's a lovely phrase. One body in Christ. Not one body of Christ, but one body in Christ. You see? We are part of Christ. That's the glory of it. Now, let us um, turn to 1 Corinthians 6, where a very interesting phrase is used. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Members of Christ. Members of Christ. Not members of the body. Here we are called members of Christ. Parts or limbs of Christ. Now compare that with Ephesians 4. Verse 25. The last part of the verse. For we are members one of another. Members of Christ members one of another. There you've got it. You see? In other words, the church is part of Christ. It is, it is Christ in us. Then if you want to look at Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16, this question of building, just as one example of it, speaking truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth, and so on, last part maketh the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. See? This building up is building up into Christ. Uh, compare that, if you like, with Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, verse 7, rooted and build it up in him. Build it up in him. And then compare it with verse 19. Holding fast the head from whom all the body being supplied and together through the joints and bands increaseth with the increase of God. You see, we need to see the church in Christ. We need to see it as, as the body of the Lord. No, no meaning apart from him. He is the head, he is the life, he is everything to it. And uh, we need to see this question of building as being built up and into Christ. It's then utterly important for all of us to recognize that Christ is all in the work of God. And when a person comes, not theoretically, but in the heart, to a recognition of that, that's the real beginning of being workers in the work of God. Christ is all in the work of God. Just let's take as an example from this, this, these two books, Haggai and Zechariah, which deal with building and building the house of God. Let's take the, some of the terms that are used in the Bible to do with building a house. A foundation. Who is the foundation? 
1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 tells us quite plainly who is the foundation. We are told that Jesus Christ alone is the foundation. What other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation of God's house is Jesus Christ. You'll find that elsewhere in Scripture as well. Paul, writing to Timothy later on, says, The firm foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let him that nameth the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Here is the foundation. Now another term that's used is the chief cornerstone. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 20. Being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. You turn back to Isaiah 28, you've got it again. Isaiah 28 Verse 16, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Now, the cornerstone is very interesting. It was usually um, a stone of huge dimensions, often exceedingly beautiful and ornate. Sometimes it stood out from the building. And the cornerstone was the great stone at the corner, the angle, which, from which always the whole building was measured. So Christ is not only the actual foundation, <coughs> but he is the cornerstone. That is, the whole church takes its measure from him. It's measured by him. He is the great cornerstone that is the strength of the whole foundation and the strength of the building. Then again, you find, and here's an interesting point, you find he is the headstone of the corner. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This headstone of the corner is the stone at the top of the, uh, of the joint of two walls. If these two walls coming together, it's the big stone in those days which was used to keep the two walls together from falling outwards. Again, it was often ornamented very beautifully, especially in bigger buildings, public buildings and palaces. It was the head of the corner, not the cornerstone, but the headstone of the corner, which held keyed the two walls together into one. Now, Christ is not only the foundation, Christ is the great cornerstone of the foundation from which the whole building is measured, but he is also the cornerstone, the head of the corner, the headstone of the corner, which keys in the building at every part. Then, also, again, very interestingly, he is the material of all the living stones. You might say, well, where do we come into this? Well, we come in just here. We are the living stones. But Christ is the material of the living stones. You see, uh, in um, 1 Peter 2, verse 4, 
It is unto whom coming a living stone rejected indeed of men, but with God elect and precious. That's Christ. Verse 5. Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house. Now, if you compare that with Matthew 16, verse 18, I believe you've got a secret. The Lord said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, the Lord said to Peter, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. He was playing on words. And his idea was this, I am the solid rock. Peter, you're a portion of it. You're a portion of it. You're no longer Simon, you're Peter. You're a portion of the rock. You've been quarried out of me. That's the point. And that's just where we have all come from. We're quarried as living stones out of the living rock. This house, the foundation is Christ. The, the chief cornerstone is Christ. The headstone of the corners is Christ. And the material of the living stones is Christ. Stones of life. Stones of life. Living stones. And then... Someone says, well, what on earth has this got to do with Zechariah? Now we've come to it. Because to me, it's a very big thing. I'd never realized it before until yesterday. Christ is the top stone. Now, is he the top stone? If you turn back to Zechariah, who had so much to do with this building of the house on the Lord, Chapter 3, no, we'll read chapter 4, verse 7, last part. He shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. Now this stone was the topmost stone of the whole building, signifying its completion. Again, it was often engraved. Because it was like a stone that, that um, set the seal upon the whole building. It was the final uh, um, piece that was put in. And, and with that, the whole building was complete. The structure was complete. The top stone. And here's a big point. The rest of the building had to be exactly right for the top stone to fit. It had to be exactly right for it to fit in just completely into its place. Ellison, um, Professor Ellison pointed out that in those days, you see, there was just this, this working absolutely intuitively according to plan, so that the top stone slid into its place absolutely now, you see, is this top stone the Lord? Chapter 3, verse 9. Last part of verse 8. I will bring forth my servant the bronze. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, upon one stone are seven eyes. 
Now these seven eyes you'll find uh, again later on in this book and also in the book of Revelation. They signify divine intelligence. The seven eyes of God. This stone is none other than Christ. It is connected with the taking away of iniquity in a day. The Messiah. The Messiah is the top stone. Now when you see that, you begin to understand what Zechariah's on about. You see? The whole point is this great structure, this work of God, Christ is everything in the work of God. He's the foundation, he's the chief cornerstone, he's the headstone of the corner, he's the material out of which the stones are quarried, living stones out of the living rock. But, and this is the wonder of it, we're waiting for the top stone to come. When the buildings got to the point where the top stone can be fitted in absolutely accurately, the Lord will return. That point, when we go to meet him and he comes to meet us, the top stone will be put into place with shouts of grace, grace, unto it. You see, I'd always thought the top stone was some dear saint of God who was the last one to ever be saved through the blood of Christ. But I see now, it is the coming of the Lord. He is the top stone. Well, when you understand that, you understand what it means when it says Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending of the work of God. He is everything. First and the last. He is the circumference of it all. And you see, it means simply this. Before the Lord can come back, that house has got to be built by the Holy Spirit according to plan. Otherwise the top stone will not fit in as it is meant to. It's got to be according to How glad we ought therefore to be that the Lord himself is the builder of the church by the Spirit. Now we need, you see, to see that by becoming involved here and now in the recovery and building up of the church, we are becoming actually involved in the coming again of Christ. The top stone to be finally and forever fitted accurately into that eternal building of God. <coughs> We are becoming involved not only in the coming again of the Lord, but if we are here and now in this building work, this recovery of the church, and it's building up and so on and so forth, then we are also involved in that great contention of Satan with the Lord that his purpose shall fail. That the church shall remain in irremediable ruin. That it shall not, under any circumstances, be recovered, even in a remnant, for the Lord. Now, when you and I see that, we see that by becoming involved in such a recovery move of the Holy Spirit, we are immediately involved in the glory and the greatness and the absolute vindication of Christ. The point is the enemy has come into this business. And he has said thus far no further. This work is to stop. 
And over the ages that we have in church history, a battle has waged backwards and forward, backwards and forward. But, and mark it, recovery after recovery after recovery has been carried through by the Holy Spirit. And what has been recovered has never been lost. You and I talk about justification by faith as if it's a household word. Before Martin Luther and Huss and Wycliffe, it wasn't even known. It was considered to be a kind of weird, heretical word. But now we all know what it means, even if we don't fully understand it or appreciate it. There are many other things that have been recovered by the Holy Spirit down through uh, the ages, when this great battle has raged. And we're in the battle. We're in the battle. For I'm afraid that the majority of Christians seem to think that there shall be no actual recovery of God's purpose. They defer it to the coming of the Lord when somehow miraculously it's all going to take place. Oh no, the enemies come out in full force. He knows what the Lord wants. He knows the building work that's got to take place. And he's, he's contending. If you and I are in this building work of the Holy Spirit in these days, then you see we are involved in the glory of the Lord and the greatness of the Lord. Is he going to have the full glory of what he originally intended? Is he so great that he is able to carry his purpose? in spite of the unbelief of his people and the, and the mighty pressure and, and opposition of Satan? Is he going to be absolutely vindicated in that when he said, I will build my church, he will build it? Or will the enemy be able to say at the end, as the enemy sinks, as it were, into the bottomless pit, well, at least I stop that. No, the Lord's going to be utterly vindicated. And you see, the wonder of it all is we shall share in the glory of the Lord and the greatness of the Lord and the absolute vindication of the Lord. If you and I are prepared to become involved now in this work of the Holy Spirit, then we shall share with him in that glory and greatness and absolute vindication. Such a committal to God's purpose to God's eternal purpose, particularly in its bearing upon his people in our day, may bring us into much difficulty and conflict and trial. But the issues are certain and eternal and glorious. Now that's Zechariah. Zechariah simply saying to the folk, are you all feeling despondent? You've come back from Babylon. You've come back from exile. You've seen Samaritan opposition. You've seen the Persian kings come backwards and forwards, first making a decree, then nullifying it, then reaffirming it, and so on. You're feeling depressed and despondent. Everything seems to be against you, and so on. Well, Zechariah said, listen, the issues of this work are certain. My house, says the Lord, shall be done. And the measuring line shall be stretched forth over Jerusalem, and my city shall overflow with prosperity. How then, you see, could Zechariah mean anything else when he says, Rejoice, O Zion, O Jerusalem, behold thy king coming, sitting on the colt, the foal of an ass. 
Jerusalem had got to be rebuilt. It's going to be rebuilt. That's the, the issues are certain. But not only are they they're eternal. It's not just that the house is going to be built here and now in a local, national way, says Zechariah. No, the branch is going to come. The one who's going to build the eternal building of God. The issues of your building, he says, them all, are eternal. Take heart. Be strong. Don't give up. You're in something eternal. And you're in something full of glory. If we want one word or verse, which unlocks the whole book, we might well take Zechariah 1, chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Here is the key that unlocks the book. It's a play on the word return. You'll find it right the way through this book. You see, they've returned. They have returned. But to what? No. To whom? Have they merely returned to the land? Have they merely returned to the city? Have they merely returned to the house? No, says the Lord. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. <coughs> you see, if we were just to take dear Haggai, and the Lord forbid that we should blacken his name, because, I mean, he was wholly uh, one with all that Zechariah said as the other way round. But if we were to take Haggai at face value, we might say, he said, return to building. Return to building. Look here, it's no good you returning to the land. It's no good you just returning to the city. It's no good you returning to the altar. You've got to get on with the actual job of building. But Zechariah says, look, this building is the building that is to do with the Lord. Return unto me. He wants them to return to himself. The centrality, the supremacy, and the glory of the Lord is the key to the recovery work of, in, in the church, the rebuilding work of the church. It's not a return merely to things, whatever they may be, or however important they may be. It must be a return to the Lord himself. Now, this challenges us. To what of you <coughs> to a teaching, to a people, to a movement, to certain truths, or have you returned to the Lord himself? It's challenging. The Lord says, if you return unto me, I will return unto you. He doesn't say, if you return to the land, I will if you return to the city, I will return. If you return to the house, no, if you stop short of those things as things, he will not return. It's necessary to return to the land. It's necessary to return to the city. It's necessary to return to the house, to the actual building. But the point is, the real return is unto me. It's all because of me. Because I'm involved. Return unto me.
I often wonder just how central the Lord is in many of our lives. Our behaviour, our conduct reveals much. And yet this is the key to Zechariah. Return unto me. When they return to him, he, not only, he will not only return to them, but the point is that upon his returning, everything else depends. You see, if you look at Zechariah 1.14, which we've read together, the Lord says, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercies or compassion. My house shall be built. Everything comes out of the return of the Lord. My house shall be built. The measuring line shall go forth over Jerusalem. The city shall overflow with prosperity. You see. And then again in chapter 2, verse 5, you've got the same thought. I will be to her a wall of fire round about, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within her. It's the returning of the Lord. You see, that's the key to that. And then in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Chapter 3, verse 2. When the Lord rebukes Satan, listen to what he says. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't that wonderful? The returning of the Lord is the key to their covering in the presence of Satan, the accuser. And then you see chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, where well, we know those verses, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, is the returning of the Lord. By my spirit, saith the Lord. That's the key to the actual completion of the work. And then chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, Again, the Lord has it here, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. You see, it is in the returning of the Lord that everything else is found. And we ought to understand this as well, that in returning to him then, that time, and his returning to them, not only the immediate future was affected, but the far distant future. This always happens. If the Lord says to us, return to me, in returning to him, not only is the present affected and the immediate future, but we have no idea of the influence it has upon the far distant future. If only we could see uh, the future as we see history. We could see how small acts of obedience are the beginning of great moves of God that go on through ages in the same way that small acts of disobedience go on through. Why, you, you take the Arabs' animosity to the Jew today. It all began with Esau <coughs> and the double-crossing of him by Jacob. Well, these are just things we're mentioning, but you see, in this 
book of Zechariah, you have two great divisions, chapters 1 to 8 and chapters 9 to 14. 1 to 8 is the present and immediate future. And chapter 9 to 14 is the far future. And the whole thing is bound up with, return unto me, and I will return unto you, says the Lord. His love is so great. You've got it all here. His choice. His jealousy for them. His love for them. His grace. His power. His glory. Everything. I wonder, do you think that any of those dear children of God who returned to the Lord then now regret it? I no doubt they don't. And will in fact anyone who in the end is part of that eternal building of God regret committing themselves in days of difficulty and trial, whatever the cost was? Never. Why, if we could have them here this evening, they would tell us it's worth absolutely worth it to be in that eternal building of the Lord, the city of the Lord, the bride of God. It's worth it. It's worth whatever the cost is. However much it means. To go through with it. So I think we ought to underline this. You see, here Zechariah's ministry is this. Are you weary of the discipline of the way, of the hardship that's involved, of the great conflict that continually rages over it. Well now look, the whole point is this, you're in a great work. It may not, have, it may not seem to be such today, but there'll come a day when you'll see that what the Lord has produced here is eternal. It's gone into an eternal building and structure that is forever and ever. So I think we must end on this book of Zechariah and the key to it. And you remember that in the book of Haggai, when we were speaking about the key and the message, we mentioned the title of the Lord that was used so much in that little book, the Lord of Hosts. It is used again in this book of Zechariah. In fact, these two books use this title more than any other book, the Lord of Hosts. In fact, Zechariah uses it 56 times, more than any other title for the Lord. It is um, most interesting because, you see, the title is never used in the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. It is never used in Joshua and Judges. The first time it is ever used is in the first chapters of the first book of Samuel with the beginning of the monarchy. And then, slowly but surely, it begins to be used, especially by the prophets. Until finally... We find it used more by Haggai and Zechariah than any other. Now, it is very interesting because the word hosts is used in the Bible, in the Old Testament, to describe the armies of Israel, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the angels in their great innumerable company. The hosts. And... When it is connected with the Lord, it is connected with his name Jehovah. 
It is Jehovah of hosts. Now it is very interesting because the title Jehovah, the name Jehovah, means basically the I Am, the unchanging God. But it is the name which always brings into view the Redeemer, the unchanging Redeemer God. Now, when you see Jehovah like that, whenever that name is used, it means the, the unchanging Redeemer or Saviour God in covenant relationship with his people. Now link it with the word hosts. The unchanging Saviour God of the hosts of heaven. And you have a title suggesting the supreme sovereignty, majesty, and power of the Redeemer. It's the most amazing combination. Because, you see, if it had been used with the Almighty just alone, it, it would have sort of all been of, of a kind. You see, the mighty one of hosts. But no, it is the redeeming God. Now, it is this title that Zechariah and Haggai use in days of breakdown, ruin, failure, of powerlessness, of spiritual poverty. They use this title, the unchanging redeemer of his people. in covenant relationship with them all. The leader of the armies of heaven. Absolute sovereign of the whole earth. When you've got that combination, you can understand, well, I, I visualize Zechariah and Haggai talking together and, and looking back at the history, it seemed to have been so impossible. Just look at it, it seems as if the enemy's got the upper hand all along. And then they looked perhaps at the people of God and look, here we are, we've got this crowd that have returned to the land, but where are they? So given to despondency already, so given to depression, so given to the possibility of somehow or other slipping onto another level, an easier level, back into compromise. The forces against the, the, the purpose of God so tremendous. And it seems to me that the Lord revealed himself to these two as the Redeemer God in charge of the armies of heaven. How will this thing be done? Not by human might, nor by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, the unchanging Redeemer in charge of the armies of heaven. That's how it's going to be done.
And not only is it going to be completed, but the top stone is going to be put into place. And the Messiah's kingdom and reign and glory is going to be introduced.